We've been waiting for you. Come on in. It's Talk 10 Tuesday with Chuck Buck and Dr. Erica Reamer. Today, we welcome professional coder, auditor, and consultant Terry Fletcher with a warning from the Office of Civil Rights and Medical Record Access. Former CMS official turned well-known healthcare IT authority, Stanley Nockinson, reports the latest regulatory news from Washington. We'll get up-to-date coding news from Lori Johnson. Dr. John Zellum adds another entry in his journaling John M.D. Tim Powell is at the Tuesday News Desk, and Dr. Reamer presents her talkback segment. Now, here's the publisher of ICD-10 Monitor, the host of Talk 10 Tuesday, and a ball player who readjusts his batting gloves after every pitch, even when he's not up, Chuck Buck. <laughs> Thanks, Clark, and by the way, I am up. Thanks, Clark Anthony, and everybody, welcome to the 518th live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, and <laughs> good morning, Erica. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. Hey, as we said last Tuesday on this very broadcast, CMS has been very busy this past week or two. Yep, it's final rule time. And, of course, mm-hmm. everyone seems to be talking about the 2023 inpatient prospective payment system. Yep, yep, yep. You're absolutely right. In fact, one of our good friends, Ron, who's also a doctor, he told me that he thought the IPPS final rule was, uh, in his words, boring. <laughs> well, I didn't find it boring so much as dense. And our friend Ron was right when he said there was much in the rule for coders and CDSs. Yep, yep, yep. So true. And that's why we're so delighted to have Lori Johnson back with us to uh, report on the coding and the MSDRG changes. Yes, and I'm going to give my impression of the final rule in my talk back as well. Well, we're looking forward to your talk back segment, as we always do. We have much news to report, and so we begin this morning with Tim Powell. Tim is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk. Thanks, Chuck, and happy anniversary to the CHIPS program. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Secretary Xavier Becerra, and Center for Medicaid and Medicaid Services Administrator Shakita Brooks-Lashur released the following statement to mark the 25th anniversary of the Children's Health Insurance Program, more commonly known as CHIPS, on August 5th. For 25 years, the Children's Health Insurance Program has provided millions of children and pregnant women with critical health, insurance coverage, and peace of mind knowing that they can get the health care they need. I was proud to be part of the historic effort to create CHIPS as a congressman in 1997, and now I am proud to lead the historic efforts to strengthen this program as Secretary of Health and Human Services. CHIPS provides low-cost health coverage to children and families that earn too much money to qualify for Medicaid. In some states, CHIP covers pregnant women. Each state offers its own CHIP coverage and works closely with its state Medicaid program. Many people see Medicaid as a single program when, in fact, each state has its own plan, and who qualifies for Medicaid varies greatly from state to state. While the numbers would be hard to quantify, it is clear that people may move from one state to another in order to qualify for Medicaid. My home state of Florida, for instance, has a particularly restrictive requirement on Medicaid eligibility. Now, while CHIP benefits are different in each state, All states have to provide a comprehensive coverage, including routine checkups, immunization, doctor visits, prescriptions, dental and vision care, inpatient and outpatient hospital care, laboratory and x-ray services, and emergency services. While all the positive things about, while all the positive things about the CHIP program, it has complicated the computation and allocation of federal funding and other allocations. It is certainly confusing that while CHIP 
claims are paid by state Medicaid plans, CHIP recipients by definition do not qualify for Medicaid and CHIP claims should not be included in Medicaid claims and state and federal findings. And with that, back to you, Chuck. Wow, thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a national correspondent for ICD-10 Monitor. It's Tuesday, it's August the 9th, and you're listening to the 518th live edition of Tucked In Tuesday. Stand by. Dramatic constant change is now the norm for society and for healthcare. With so much upheaval, you must adopt new practices and protocols, including how you access continuing education. In-person conferences are not always possible, but it is important to stay current with ICD-10 coding best practices and the latest rules. And CEUs are still needed to maintain professional credentials. Get critical continuing education today with a subscription to ICD-10 Monitor Educational Webcasts. For one affordable annual fee, Everyone on your team gets access to dozens of exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcasts on a comprehensive range of timely topics. Is an ICD-10 Monitor subscription right for you? Visit ICD10Monitor.com to learn more about a webcast subscription. Now it's time for the Talked In Tuesday Coding Report with Lori Johnson. And good morning, Lori Johnson. Good morning, Chuck Buck. And good morning, Erica. And hello to our listeners. The MLN Connects from August 4, 2022 provided lots of good resources last week. First, there are links to both procedure and diagnosis codes for fiscal year 23. These links for the links for the diagnosis code lead to files on present on admission exempt codes, conversion table for fiscal year 23 codes to previous year codes, addendums code tables, tabular, and the index, and also the official coding guidelines. The link to the ICD-10 PCS codes leads to the procedure guidelines, a conversion table, PCS code tables and index, and the 2023 version update summary. The link also takes the user to addendum files, which show only the changes that are made in the classification. MLN Connects also provides links to MSDRG version 40 software. There are also links to the manual on MSDRG version 40 Medicare code edits. This manual includes a listing of all the ICD-10CM and PCS codes that apply to each Medicare code edit. The HTML version of the MSDRG definition manual version 40 is not available yet. There is also information for the September 13th and 14th uh, Coordination and Maintenance Committee. This virtual meeting will begin with the procedure portion. The The tentative agenda has been posted on the Coordination and Maintenance Committee website. For PCS, there are two proposals that will not be reviewed during the meeting, but CMS would like your opinion. There are 26 items on the CDC tentative agenda. The URLs or phone numbers are included in a CMS agenda so that you can join the meeting. October 14th is the deadline for submitting comments on the new code proposals that are effective April 1st, 2023. The deadline for the other codes is November 15th. 
in November, there will also be an announcement of new technology add-on payments that are effective for April 1st, 2023. So, Erica, this has been a busy season for code information, and there are lots of codes to keep track of. So with that, I'm turning it back to you. Thanks, Lori. That was Lori Johnson. Lori is a senior healthcare consultant at Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC. Chuck? Thanks, Erica. And Lori Johnson, thanks again for an excellent report. Coming up next, another journal entry from Dr. John Zillum. Journaling John MD is sponsored by High Techs, a clinical informatics organization dedicated to bringing the most advanced technology and people to assist healthcare professionals at the point of care and provide proactive workflow assistance to clinical documentation integrity, computer-assisted physician documentation, and clinical decision support. All Hitex products are integrated into the Epic EHR front-end user interface. Find them at Hitex.com. Here now with our special segment called Journaling John MD is the Journaling John MD. Dr. John Zellin, good morning, Dr. Zellin. Good morning, Chuck, and good morning to everybody. My topic today is that of culture. I've recently added a new critical access hospital to my functions as a physician advisor. It's about 45 minutes away from the present organization that I work with. And one thing that I have found very interesting is that even with many similarities and considering the relatively short distance between the two, there is a different culture there. Once you'd realize that every organization everywhere, not just in healthcare, healthcare has its own culture. In an article from Forbes by Dr. Pragya Agrawal, he states that culture in the workplace is the shared values, belief systems, attitudes, and the set of assumptions that people in a workplace share. There is no such thing as the right culture because it is shaped by individual upbringing, social, and cultural context. But there can be a good culture. In the workplace, however, the leadership and the strategic organizational directions and management do influence the workplace culture to a huge extent. I once attended a presentation by a hospital CEO in Michigan to her employees, and she said that culture is not taught. It is learned, and it can take up to six months to learn a new culture. Based on on this thinking, for those of you in one setting, you only have to learn or adopt one culture. But for those of us with multiple settings, such as my new position, we must, learn, we must learn and try to understand and respect the differences between those settings. One must be cautious, though, to not make comparisons, or as that can lead to disastrous consequences. So here are a couple of categories or areas to learn about whether you are in an organization or new to an organization or have been there for a long time. Number one, What is the geographical location? Is it urban, rural, or other? This can affect the social determinants of health that need to be dealt with, amongst other things. I remember when I worked in a hospital in very rural Mississippi, I had a lot to learn there, and I did. Two, what is the mission statement of the facility? That's so important. As mentioned above, leadership can affect organizational direction, and changes in leadership can have a significant effect. But will the new leadership try to change the culture or embrace the existing culture? I'm not here to state which is the better way. It depends upon the situation. Certainly what is commonly referred to as a toxic culture would benefit from change. Number three, the last area I will address is that of change. Will you change to adapt the present culture as a leader 
or you or will you be an agent of change? The answer should fall somewhere halfway between both. Remember that change can be difficult and challenging. So in summary, whether you are in management or a member of a team, one must respect the culture of where you are. It was there long before you arrived and will be there long after you leave. It may require a paradigm shift in thinking, whether it be adapting or changing the culture. What effect will you have? Back to you, Erica. Thanks, John. That was Dr. John Zellum. Dr. Zellum is the founder and CEO of Streamline Solutions Consulting, and he's the physician advisor for Cameron Memorial Community Hospital. Chuck? Thank you both, and a program reminder, you're listening to the 518th Live Edition Talked In Tuesday. Stand by. Attention coding professionals and all HIM professionals. There's an upcoming three-day conference you'll need to attend to remain compliant with the 2023 Inpatient Prospective Payment System, the IPS. It's the IPS Summit, produced by ICD-10 Monitor. During this exclusive three-day summit, you'll learn about the 2023 changes associated with the IPPS, including new ICD-10 CM and PCS codes, plus insights, analysis, and answers to questions. Register now to attend. The session begins August 16th and continues the 17th and 18th. That's the annual IPS Summit, produced by ICD-10 Monitor. Register now at the ICD-10 Monitor Bookstore. Now it's time for the RegWatch segment featuring nationally recognized healthcare technology consultant Stanley Nockerson. And Stanley, good morning. There's a lot of news coming out of Washington these days. What do we really need to know? Good morning. Let's get right to it. CMS has published the fiscal year 2023, beginning October 1st, 2022, final rules for Medicare payments. The major rule is, of course, the inpatient hospital PPS and long-term care hospital PPS rule. This rule contained a number of payment and quality program changes, as well as some policy changes that go into effect October 1st, 2022. The increase in the operating payment rates for general acute care hospitals paid under the IPPS that successfully participate in the hospital quality program and are meaningful electronic health record users is 4.3%. Now that's 1.1% higher than the proposed rule and reflects more recent economic data. While this is positive news for hospitals, the American Hospital Association is still concerned that this rate increase will not cover increased hospital costs. Relative weights for the DRGs have been calculated using an average of data that includes and excludes COVID-19 claims. CMS believes this gives a better estimate of the changes for fiscal year 2023. CMS approved eight technologies that applied for new technology add-on payments for fiscal year 2023 and is continuing payment for 15 existing ones. Now, CMS did not propose any new MSDRGs for fiscal year 2023, which means the number of MSDRGs is maintained at 767. CMS did finalize the reclassification of laser interstitial thermal therapy, LIT, procedures under the MSDRG. As well, there are some technical refinements to MSDRG assignments. The final rule also includes updates to graduate medical education reimbursement, uncompensated care payment policies, and a cap on hospital wage index decreases. 
Updates were made to the Promoting Interoperability Program and the Hospital Quality Reporting Program. CMS will establish a birthing-friendly hospital designation, a publicly reported public-facing hospital designation on the quality and safety of maternity care starting in the fall of 2023. And in regards to long-term care hospitals, their payments are expected to increase by 2.3% in this upcoming fiscal year under their PPS program. Regarding the skilled nursing facility PPS rule, CMS estimates the aggregate impact of those payment policies in the final rule would result in an increase of 2.7%, or about $904 million in the Medicare Part A payments to SNFs in fiscal year 2023 compared to 2022. Now, this is based on changes to the case mix classification model called the payment-driven payment model. Which, was, which began on October 1st, 2019, under the SNF Prospective Payment System. When finalizing that model, CMS also finalized the new case mix classification model and attempted to implement it in a budget-neutral manner, meaning that transition uh, would result in no outstanding increases or decreases to payments. Um, however, uh, the PDM that was implemented in fiscal year 2022, CMS's initial data analysis showed an unintended increase in payments of approximately 5%. As with past case mix model transitions, CMS conducted the data analysis to recalibrate the parity adjustment in order to approve budget achieve budget neutrality under this new model. So finalizing the recalibration of the parity adjustment factor CMS is uh, phasing in a two-year adjustment that would reduce SNF spending by 2.3% in 2023 and 2.3% in 2024. Other policy changes in this rule include several changes to the ICD-10 code mapping for the PDPM, updates to the SNF value-based purchasing program, and updates to the participation requirements for long-term care facilities. In fiscal year 2023, hospice payment update percentage is 3.8%, including a statutory aggregate cap that limits the overall payments per patient made to the hospital to the hospice annually. The cap amount for fiscal year 2023 is $32,486.92. Uh, the FY22 cap amount increased by 3.8%. And for inpatient psychiatric facilities, the total estimated payments to these facilities are estimated to increase by 2.5% in fiscal year 2023 relative to the payments in fiscal year 2022. Back to you, Erica. Thank you, Stanley. That was Healthcare IT Authority, Stanley Nockamson. Stanley is the founder of Nockamson Advisors, LLC. Chuck? Thank you, Erica and Stanley. Thank you very much for a very comprehensive report on the IPPS final rule. Here's a developing story. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office of Civil Rights is now warning healthcare providers about the mandatory compliance with the HIPAA right of access. So far, enforcement actions bring to 38 the number of financial penalties against HIPAA-covered entities for failing to provide patients with a timely access to their medical records. Here now with the details on this developing story is Terry Fletcher. Good morning, Terry. Good morning, Chuck. Good morning, Erica, and good morning to our listeners. In a recent HIPAA journal publication, it was stated that the HHS, Office of Civil Rights, 
has issued a warning to healthcare providers focusing on the importance of compliance with the HIPAA right to access. This is also part of the 21st Century Cures Act. They announced that the total number of financial penalties imposed under the HIPAA right of access enforcement, again, is up to 38. More than 11 financial penalties for HIPAA-covered entities, such as hospitals and physician practices, fail to provide patients when requested timely access to their medical records. So let's remind what, as a provider, hospital, or any other HIPAA entity, someone who houses the patient's electronic patient, uh, protected health information, is mandated to do when requested by the patient or other or their approved representative. The HIPAA right of access gives people the right to inspect their protected health information, check the information for errors, and request that any errors be corrected. Patients can also copy a request, uh, request a copy of their protected health information from healthcare providers and health plans. When such a request is made, the requested information must be provided in full within 30 days of the request being received. Some circumstances will allow an extension of 30 days, but those are very limited. Requests can be submitted by patients or, again, their nominated representatives and parents and legal guardians of minors are permitted to obtain a copy of their minor's records. Any individual requesting a copy of their records can only be charged a reasonable cost-based fee for obtaining a copy of their records. The records should be provided, and this is the key here, in the format requested by the patient. So provided in the HIPAA-covered entity has the technical capability to provide records in that format. Further, if the patient wants the records, let's say in a phone app, in a digital access, that again is HIPAA-protected, and the physician or facility has that capability, then that's how you have to deliver it. If the HIPAA-covered entity does not have that particular platform of delivery, you can ask the OCR to assist in implementing that electronic capability for you. They can even help with the expense of adding it to your patient options for access. There's also an option to direct the patient to your EMR, password-protected portal, as long as the patient is given easy access instructions for use and agrees to that form of delivery. You have to walk them through it. Do not let your front desk or anyone who gets the request just say, hey, you can access your patient portal with your password and hang up on them. I've seen that happen. Per, again, the HIPAA report and the OCR, the latest penalties were all imposed for the failure to provide timely access to an individual's medical records, rather than for charging unreasonable fees for the right of access. All but one of these cases was, was settled with the OCR, with the covered entities, agreeing to also a corrective action plan to address the noncompliance and prevent further violations. To further illustrate, here's also a likely interference and where you cannot delay providing access. So let's say the patient is logging into their portal access and it's not available for a certain period of time because the physician wants to update it. You can't deny access. It needs to be there if they ask for it. Where delay occurs in providing, again, electronic health information and the application probing interface, programming interface or healthcare app has authorized to receive it without reason, and so basically you're saying, we're not giving it to you because we don't have that. Or a delay beyond the regulatory time period. Keep in mind those time periods. Another is many HIPAA-covered entities, and this is a big one, believe that if the patient has an outstanding balance with that entity or physician practice, that they can hold the patient's records based on that issue. That's an inaccurate assumption. An example, the patient has an outstanding balance and let's say they have diabetic shoes for your practice and you order for them and you have them. Can you withhold those shoes for payment? Yes, but not the prescription for the shoes. That's protected health information. OCR's investigations are also showing that many entities have these complaints filed against them 
are failing to respond to data requests, access requests, OCR's notice of proposed determination of financial penalty, and anything that the OCR is sending. Please do not ignore these requests. They are going to find you. And again, the release of patient health information is not conditional on whether or not the patient's bill is paid in full. They also publish the penalties against the practices and against these facilities. And so your name will be in light. For example, ACM Podiatry in Illinois, $100,000 penalty. Memorial Hermann Health System in Texas, $240,000 penalty. Even something as small as um, there was a dentist in Maryland, $5,000 penalty, all for failure to provide records for more than three months. OCR has now imposed 122 financial penalties for these violations since 2008. The latest batch of penalties brings the total enforcement actions in 22 involving a financial penalty up to 16. Please know your rules, know how the record requests are handled in your practice, and do not ignore these requests. More on this topic, please read my article in ICD-10 Monitor today. With that, back to you, Erica. Thanks, Terry. That was nationally recognized professional coder, auditor, and educator, Terry Fletcher. Chuck? Thank you, Erica, and thank you again, Terry Fletcher. Be sure to read Terry's excellent in-depth reporting on this very serious developing story in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Now's the time for a very popular segment here at Talk to Tuesday, and it's called Talk Back, and it features our very own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, it's all yours. Thanks, Chuck. The fiscal year 2023 inpatient prospective payment system, IPPS, final rule came out on August 1st, and the official published version is due out tomorrow. See my article on ICD-10 Monitor for the link. It is 2,087 pages of dense government speak, and I focus on those sections relevant to my expertise. It is interesting to see the comments and responses. For more in-depth exploration for some of the topics, I recommend you join Lori Johnson, Chuck Buck, and me for our IPPS Summit next week. Here are some of the highlights. CMS claims it is for us, but it seems as though they need more time to evaluate requested changes and to analyze data, so they are moving requests for updates to the MSDRG classification from November 1st to October 20th. They are requiring use of the Medicare Electronic Application Request Information System, MIRIS, which is already used for new technology add-on payment applications and requests for ICD-10 PCS procedure codes. They inform us that a major revamp of the MSDRGs with the comorbidity subgroupings is planned but being delayed by the public health emergency. They are also planning a comprehensive, systematic, multi-year review of the ICD-10 PCS procedure codes to identify which operations are considered OR and whether they should affect the MSDRG. Some of the DRG changes coming now include laser interstitial thermal therapy, LITT, of the brain and brain stem are going to be moved back into the MSDRG for craniotomy and endovascular procedures. Central and branch retinal artery occlusions, although they may be akin to a stroke, are staying in the Neurological Eye Disorders DRG. ARDS J80 is going to be reassigned to MSDRG 189, pulmonary edema, and and respiratory failure. This seems like an obvious move to me. Um, 0FC 
Z-Z, extirpation of matter from common bile duct percutaneous endoscopic approach, is being reclassified as an OR procedure and will be added to the logic list for common bile duct explorations. Some changes in grouping are being made to avoid the procedure unrelated to principal diagnosis classification, such as embolization of hepatic and portal veins. I will address the social determinants of health subsection next week. The final rule detailed the changes in the Medicare Code Editor, MCE, including the sex conflict conflict edits. Commenters and CMS are grappling with how best to deal with transgender or non-binary individuals. They are seeking further input. The ICD-10 Coordination and Maintenance Committee is how ICD-10 is modified, but the final rule establishes the tables with the additions and deletions. Almost 74,000 CM and 79,000 PCS codes in 2023. I found the methodology to calculate the updated relative weights fascinating. They use almost 7.5 million fee-for-service Medicare discharges. Medicare Advantage is therefore excluded. They then are using a combination of pre- and post-COVID-19 relative weights to try to predict valid relative weights. They also announced that there will be a permanent 10% cap on relative weight reduction per year. COVID-19 is still impacting quality metrics. Many measures are being suppressed, although they may be available to review for transparency. Examples are the Composite Patient Safety Indicator, PSI-90, Hospital Consumer Assessment of Healthcare Providers and, and Systems, HCAPs, and Healthcare Associated Infection Safety Measures, HAIs. The Hospital Readmissions Reduction Program is reintroducing the pneumonia readmission measure, although it will be excluding COVID-19 as a principal or secondary diagnosis. I always encourage you or somebody from your organization to review the final rule yourself to see how it will affect you. They are still seeking some feedback on some elements. And please join us for a deeper dive into the DRGs and diagnoses next week at our IPPS Summit. Back to you, Chuck. Thank you very much, Erica. And that's going to be a wrap for our 518th live edition of Talked In Tuesday. And I want to thank our panelists today, Laurie Johnson, Timothy Powell, Stanley Knives, and Dr. John Selim. Terry Fletcher, who reported our lead story, and a special thanks to you, my co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And remember, you can listen to all the Talk 10 Tuesday broadcasts on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for ICD-10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Have a great day, everybody. Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD-10 Monitor.